<coughs> Welcome. This week marks the first ever episode of Trade Splaining. We're excited to get things started. Thanks to those who've already subscribed. We started this podcast because we got tired of having. We did. We get tired. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm really exhausted now. My name's Artie. Together with my co-host Rob, we want to welcome you to the Tradesplaining Podcast. Tradesplaining is a bi-monthly look at current events, trade, and politics as seen through the eyes of two American expats living in that expatopia known as Geneva, Switzerland. We know you're all having these conversations amongst yourselves already, but here's an idea. Let us have the conversation for you and with you. We know many people are already talking about big things like the future of the WTO, but we want to ask a different question. Does it even matter? And if so, how? Joining us on each episode on this journey of cultural exploration will be an eclectic mix of interview guests ranging from fellow expats, leaders in their field, and people who just really, really, really want to plug their upcoming books. And in between advertisements for coffee enemas and cryptocurrencies, they'll provide insights into their respective fields and views on where we go from here. So buckle up and get ready to join us on Tradesplaining. And remember to tell your friends. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. This week marks the first ever episode of Tradesplaining. On behalf of my co-host, Rob, we want to welcome everybody, and we're excited to get things started. Thanks to those of you who have already subscribed. If you haven't done so already, please click on the subscribe link and share with your friends. We started this podcast because we got tired of, of having these conversations in, in small groups, and we thought a podcast was a cool way to really take it to a wider community of people who work in, in similar fields, but also people who tend to be expats living in a vibrant cosmopolitan city like Geneva. And I think the podcast is also a chance to interview this great mix of personalities and people that you meet daily in Geneva and hear stories from their work, but also from their lives. Yeah, I agree. It's a chance to have these cool conversations. It's a chance also for us to talk about our different views on things. Would anybody really use vibrant and Geneva in the same sentence? It's also a chance to meet cool people, talk to them, get a little bit of their view on how things are going. A lot of big issues come to Geneva, as we know, to chat, like trade, like world health, pandemics, and so on. Some things come to Geneva to die. My social life would be a good example. <laughs> it's also a chance for us to try out some jokes about Geneva without a live audience reacting, which I think is really very important to us. And that's great. Podcasts are, you know, they're comedy shows without uh, booing. And, and finally, of course, it's a chance for us to read the paper and get some additional value out of that. Correction. It's a chance for you to continue reading the paper. I have never read the paper in Geneva. Should I have said that? I think it's very good that we're also learning about each other during during the podcast. We've only known each other for seven years, but you know, every day is a new day. Also, I guess part of the podcast is to try to do this in a way that will generate revenue. Yeah, I mean, what I wanted to get out of this is just to get rich selling fish oil supplements in between interview guests, really. I get a lot of Russian wife ads. Would that be a thing? I think that's for another <laughs> that's for another podcast. So Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself. We know enough about the Russian wife ads. 
we can if you are selling Russian wife ads, we are open for business, by the way. But anyway, I digress. Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Artie. I'm originally from Madison, Wisconsin. You'll recognize that as part of the United States between the East and West Coasts that you may have seen out of an airplane window. Something people from New York, like yourself, may fly over occasionally. On my way to Vegas. I've been living in Geneva for the past 11 years. I do enjoy it here. I work for a UN agency we will try not to mention during the broadcast. By try, he means never mention. I'm here with my wife, Aimé, and brought up two children here who both decided to go back to the U.S. Doesn't seem like that great a choice presently, but who knows? We're optimistic. Sounds like they're there to make America great again. Tell us about you, Artie, uh, and your growing up in New Jersey. Well, thanks for that introduction, Rob. Just a quick update. I'm not from Jersey. Unlike Rob, I'm not from the Midwest. I didn't grow up on a farm with chickens. I actually grew up in Staten Island, New York. And I've been in Geneva for the past seven years, since 2013, where I also work in development. Also, I'm here because Rob made me. Seven years, as you'll recognize for Artie, is really a big portion of his adult life. So it's been very formative for him. It has. We also want to mention that the views expressed on this show are our own and not those of any organization we work with or even really our own wives. In fact, they may actually be against them. Our wives don't actually know we're recording this podcast. It's just until the next bank statement comes through. And they want to know why we spent six gajillion dollars on microphones. <laughs> because we're professionals. That's why, honey. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. Well, it's been a slow past couple of months in terms of important world-shaping events, hasn't it? I mean, 2020 has really not given us much to talk about, has it, Rob? Pretty normal. We've been keep keeping it... Still getting paid. Very calm. Yeah, exactly. Well, in case you're not Rob, uh, there's actually been quite a bit. COVID, duh, is the big one. So COVID has impacted every facet of our lives, from trade to the way we say hello, to the way we say goodbye, to whether we say hello at all, to affect supply chains around the world led to the biggest global economic downturn in Rob's lifetime, which is saying a lot because he's pretty old. You've also got international organizations who are in the news, which really uh, hits close to home, especially for us here in Geneva. The head of WTO announced that he's resigning early in August. Trump's also announced that, or the Trump administration, I should say, has announced that the U.S. is going to terminate its relationship with the WHO. Who? The WHO. Yeah, who? It's the WHO. It's the World Health Organization. Thank you. Thank you for that. And then I think the other big one we'll, we'll touch on today is the U.S. politics has been in the news quite a bit. Protests in the U.S. have been going on in at different parts of the country since end of May, I believe. And this is obviously following the George Floyd killing. Trump, you know, throughout this has emerged as sort of this law and order president. So it's an interesting dynamic going on within U.S. politics. And I think the reason this is interesting is because it obviously has an effect on everyone's lives, right? So then obviously there's the relationship between the EU and the US during COVID, but also showing signs of strain. And these are all things that really affect us in, in big ways. So I think we should just jump into it. COVID, generally speaking, how has it affected you? Well, I think primarily already we spent three months in the same apartment. So it's meant a massive hunger for redecoration, new furniture, but more seriously... But you also love your wife. I, I, love, I love my wife. That's not what I meant by remodeling. No, I think it's been uh, an interesting time. It's actually shown us a lot of things we didn't know were possible. 
Government can be much more involved in our lives. It's shown us we probably don't need to go to the office, which is could be a, a huge restructuring of how life works. Do we need to commute? Do we need to be in the car? It's shown me that even though I'm in Geneva, the U.S. government's willing to pay me $2,400 for nothing. That makes two of us. And I think what that's led to is discussions with uh, my wife about how we're going to spend it. And I think we're already up to four or five times that amount. Well, this is really just a subsidy. This is more of an impact investment loan, if you will. He's not only kickstarting the U.S. economy, he's kickstarting every economy, wherever Americans live. It's make the world great again, Artie. I think that's where we're going with this. Make Earth great again. Miega. Mega. 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 But let me, let me hear from you how it's been being far away from your family during this time. You know, apart from all of the things you mentioned in Geneva, I mean, I haven't done any remodeling. It's just been mainly, it was mainly stuck at home with my wife, who I realize is now the one for me because we fought zero times during lockdown. We've actually fought in more after lockdown has ended. But point being, she's the one for me. Actually, um, we, we took to heart this advice that you should continue as per normal. So my wife and I continued to fight at just the same rate. So, for example... How I crunch chips became a very, very important issue. We did overcome that one. You are a loud cruncher. You are my, a loud chewer. My mouth is closed, though. But we can still hear you is the problem. This is, there's a technical thing. Anyway, moving on. On a more serious note, it's been quite difficult for me personally, I think, being so far away from home. I mean, before COVID happened, I used to think that New York City was just sort of a seven, eight hour flight away and I can go back whenever I wanted. And you sort of take those things for granted and being far away from your family, one is hard enough, but two, when a pandemic is, is hitting and you're, you're not there to be able to help. On top of that, New York City was affected quite a bit. And so that was really hard to, to go through. For example, everyone in my family has actually tested positive for COVID at one point. In late March, early April, they all tested positive. So that was really a super stressful situation. And as I said, it's so many of the quote unquote normal things that we have, the positive benefits of being expats, but living in this globalized world, you, you definitely take for granted. And that for me has been a hard part of this, actually. I think, no, I think we've seen this. A lot of people in Geneva are in the same situation, even if, for instance, they have family in Spain or Italy or even in nearby France. Suddenly, with the borders being closed, this became difficult. This became kind of regressive in a sense. Borders started again. Borders began to be patrolled again. And I think that was quite a shock here in Europe, maybe more so than elsewhere. I think on the side of our work, especially for people who are working in Geneva, travel is normally a huge part of what we do. And people may be traveling up to half half of the time. And in some ways, the work they do goes on the rhythm of travel. And now we find maybe this isn't necessary. Maybe we're able to work with countries in, develop, in developing world, for instance, remotely, even given all of the barriers that we see. I think that in a way, we would never would have wanted this kind of an economic downturn to be the reason for it. But this could be a very important development in how we do our work and could also have a big, you know, big effect on how much carbon we generate. COVID is also going to make it harder for us to actually spend money because of those first class tickets that international civil servants fly when they're going to do development is 
is going to be hard to replicate from just, you know, a training that's online. That's also difficult. I mean, those peanuts are not going to buy themselves in first class. Yeah, peanuts are free in first class already. I know that well, your obviously it doesn't obviously travel, I've never flown first class. Doesn't travel in the front of the plane very often. I'm not part of the bourgeoisie, as you can tell. I'm just a working man. It's also business class primarily, so maybe you know, relook at that part of the script as what's, well. What's the difference at this point? Maybe we move on to some of the more important global ramifications. Less touchy subjects. Well, on a serious note, I think COVID has essentially sped up every global movement or trend by about 10 years. And so if you're a company, an organization, an employee, an employer, basically what you were planning to be doing in 10 years, you should be ready to do now, essentially. So if you're you know, a grocer, you need to be ready to go to e-commerce platforms quite quickly, which we saw was at least companies like Migro or Co-op in, in Geneva was a bit of a learning curve at first. And then you had to see these these companies play catch up. So essentially what they would have been doing 10 years from now, they needed to do yesterday. And so whether you're a co-op or a migro, these are these trends that you know we needed to be prepared for and we weren't. And we see the inherent sort of, I don't know, fragility is the right word, maybe a lack of resilience in many, many areas. And whether you're talking about Zara, whether you're talking about the grocery store down the street, we, we saw a lack of resilience in a lot of these key cogs of our economy. And that's to say nothing of how mentally prepared we were for this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, let's say on the positive side, we see the effects of distance may be reduced. We see people in countries where we're working in Africa, for instance, trust e-commerce now. They now believe in it. Systems for e-payment have, as you say, been accelerated quite a lot. And with that confidence and that trust comes a bigger market for, for small companies there who can now trade uh, through this channel and that can reduce costs incredibly. So, and for instance, in the area of financial services could have a massive effect in lowering the cost of trade. So there are good parts of it. We are trying to also preserve those in the face of what's going to be an extremely challenging few years. So what I'm hearing is invest in e-commerce across the board. Commerce and anything digital, as you say, anybody who is able to provide you a service uh, digitally. For instance, let's go back to remodeling. If I can get advice on remodeling my living room digitally. Because your wife made you, but anyway. Look, we made a few purchases. It might have been a little hasty when we got here. An Ikea table. Dark, heavy, huge. These are not good characteristics. We had to replace that. This was very, very urgent. This was a quote-unquote joint decision? That was a joint decision. Mm -hmm. Perhaps if we want to look to not joint decisions, we can go to the three bicycles that are sitting in my uh, living room. Yeah, the the space in the apartment is is rapidly dwindling. It's tough being an international civil servant. How many bedrooms is this? Seven? It's tough getting out of this segment. <laughs> even, even, even tougher. Help. Help. Actually, one thing I'd like to talk about before we move on to, what does this mean for cities? And this is something I've been sort of pinging around in my head quite a bit, is if everybody is working from, from home now, whether that's a, a millennial working at a PwC or an accounting firm or even working for the UN, what does working from home mean for a city like Geneva or New York or wherever? Does that mean that, you know, if you own commercial real estate in, say, New York City, that you're, quote unquote, screwed now? Well, very specifically for us who work at the UN in Geneva, does the UN still need a headquarters if 
the staff can work remotely? It's an open question. It's very early to know, but this has implications for how also the UN operates as a center for dialogue. Is that dialogue now going to be handled remotely? And if so, again, do you need the Viennas, the Genevas, the New Yorks to be these areas to come together? I guess likely it's going to be some mix, but the in-person meetings, I guess, are very likely to be reduced. I think you'll, you'll definitely see more of that. But also, what does that mean for for countries who are hosting these organizations? So, for example, I have a friend who works in Geneva, and right before COVID, he happened to buy a house in, in Valais, which, for those of you not in Switzerland, which is basically another Swiss canton that's maybe an hour or two from Geneva, and he was working from home from the Swiss mountains for the better part of three months. So what does that mean for his taxes, for example? Does that mean that we'll see another race to the bottom in terms of cities, states, uh, local municipalities competing against one another to offer lowest tax rates for these sort of mobile, if you will, workers, people who don't necessarily, as you say, need to be in Geneva any longer to work, but rather can do this from their chalet in the mountains, which is far, far cheaper, and the tax rates are far lower. So how is that going to work? If I look at the U.S., I can see a situation where a banker who's making a fairly decent wage in working in New York City, but he's living in, say, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which it's a decent sort of middle class area in, in Jersey. But if he had the option to say, okay, I can do my job and move to a really low tax haven like North Carolina or South Carolina, or just actually don't pay any tax at all and move to Florida without the COVID, then he'll probably do that. And what does that mean for these quote-unquote suburban areas outside of the big metropolises? What does that mean for the tax revenue that these, yeah, that these I think states it could, get? It, I think there's hope that something like this could actually reduce the tremendous advantage that cities currently have. All the dynamic things that are happening, innovation, lower cost, higher property prices, better job prospects, they're all in cities. And that is emptying our rural areas. If you talk about the state I grew up in, the town I grew up in, Madison, has been growing and has been come, becoming more and more dynamic, has a university which drives growth, and the rest of the state has been losing manufacturing jobs. This is the kind of thing we hear a lot about in our various conversations about globalization. Maybe something like this can even the playing field a bit. I'm not sure even taxes will be the major issue. I think it's going to be quality of life that will still determine. People also have a higher quality of life in cities. They can walk. They can take public transport. So will will these kinds of things even out and will people start working from Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin for the UN in Geneva? I would never move anywhere named Chippewa Falls, ever. I guess we also have to ask a really critical question. If we're not going to be running massive dialogues in Geneva, what about all the coffee? What about all the croissant? What about all the pain au chocolat? What about these oceans of salad sauce? What about the pasta? The sheer number of pastas that are being boiled, the chickens that are being overcooked. What are we going to do with all of these resources? I think that uh, is also a critical issue. You're worried about the, the bolognese sauce? You're worried about carbonara right now? It was more, more was, the bolognese. I heard was, my New York accent yeah. come out, my Staten Island accent come out of there. It was more the, more the bolognese, not the carbonara so much. 
you talk about quality of life actually and i you know seeing you know people moving to madison and things like this and i see that in geneva i saw that myself when i moved here from new york city i mean i grew up on staten island which is already a quite residential area but to do anything really everything revolves around manhattan brooklyn queens all of these these sort of bigger hubs right and so to get there from staten island if you were lucky if it took you half an hour and i've seen the benefits you know of of living in a city like Geneva where you do have quality of life and i didn't really know what that meant i thought that was just something white people say that they really like but to live it to actually feel it is is, is something different but i i can definitely see people moving to madison i mean madison sounds like a city i would live in not chippewa falls but madison sounds kind of cool but even if you want to stay in chippewa falls or you want to stay in nearby france in one of the small towns there you've got to go 40 minutes or 50 minutes to buy a chair you've got to go that far to find a library you've got to get in your car to buy a loaf of bread these are the kinds of things that rural areas are addressing availability of hospital care these kinds of things are difficult availability of bolognese a good one not the one with the tomatoes but the real one if we're talking about cities and we're talking about geneva the world trade organization is one of the key things people know about geneva it started in 1995 as it, we know it's not john calvin calvin's big calvin's big he was wto's bigger yeah wto's funner yeah it's funner calvin wasn't it's not it's not a fun thing calvin john calvin not fun i got it fun fact protestants are many fewer in geneva now than catholics John Calvin is probably rolling in his grave. Yeah. Quietly. Quietly. <laughs> Quietly and very appropriately in a, in a very gray kind of outfit. Anyway, WTO is a known thing in Geneva. And it started in 95. We know there was a predecessor, GATT, that came before. Now we're coming to the point where the WTO's future is in question. maybe the march we thought which was inevitable to a global trading system that's rules based that's centered at the WTO maybe that's not the way we're going to go forward and we know the US has brought up a lot of concerns many of them way before president trump ever came into office and that's a, a development that a lot of us are looking at very closely what do you think what Do you believe your family in Staten Island thinks about the WTO, the future of the rules-based trading system? So that's that's a good question. I think everybody has family members who are like this. Uh, you know, you love them to death, but they believe what they believe and I think some of it is based in reality, much of it is not, but th- there is a kernel of truth or uh, I don't know if resentment is the right word in terms of what they're saying, but it, it is there. So just for a bit of context, my family uh, that's based in New York, they grew up in New York City during the 70s and 80s. So they have this sort of uh, us versus them mentality already ingrained, right? And I think it starts from there to an extent. And I think there's there's a weird mesh of of interest that align when it comes to these things. Sort of whether or not we're talking about identity, politics or workers' rights uh, and things like this. And I think you're seeing that in Trump voters today. Is trade good? So less interested in trade per se than about getting ahead if you will. So it's it's a bit more territorial if you will. Sort of like okay, China has taken advantage of of the US. That sounds like a good line. Trump, you know, he's making sense. Yeah, maybe maybe we don't need the WTO. Maybe he's right. If he's saying things that I broadly agree with, then maybe he does have a point. Why do we need the WTO? 
And to be honest, I, I could give him sort of the Gentry response, you know, rules-based system is, is important because nobody follows the rules, et cetera, et cetera. So to be honest with you, it's a difficult question to answer. They care about trade, but they don't. They care about it insofar as it benefits them or perceives it to have benefited them. Sort of us versus them mentality already ingrained, right? And I think it starts from there to an extent. And I think there's this weird mesh of interests aligned when it comes to these things, sort of, you know, whether you're talking about identity politics, workers' rights, immigration, uh, economic nationalism, quote unquote, things like this. I think you're seeing that in Trump voters today and in many others on the left also. So these interests sort of align. So there is some kernel of truth in their dissatisfaction. This is a really important point, and the point that's becoming increasingly clear to those of us, for instance, I went to graduate school in the early 1990s, free trade was an end in and of itself. We believed in that, the Washington Consensus, we need to reduce transaction costs, make things predictable, and that's why we have a rule-based system. People now are saying, well, what have the results been? What are the outcomes? Has it benefited us? And I think the arguments that we're making on behalf of free trade and WTO maybe are not clear enough. Maybe they're not strong enough. And maybe there is a balance to to be had there. So I think the questions in many cases that your uh, hypothetical uncle, Artie, may well be asking exactly the right questions. And I'm not sure that we've set up the system in Geneva to answer those questions effectively enough. And it's not only your uncle, in quotes, it's also people across the developed world who are asking these same questions. What is trade for? Have I benefited? If so, how? These are the kinds of things that the new director of the WTO will have to think about. They're more political. They're not technical. This is not a legal brief to be read. It is not a paragraph to be worked through. These are answers that that, uh, real people need to hear. But I mean, to be fair, I don't think that Somebody like even my dad, for example, who detests Trump and he's sort of on the Bernie Sanders train. Oddly enough, those two things seem to intersect Bernie Sanders voters and, and Trump voters in the sense that they are against trade. So these things align insofar as they don't really care what the technical rationale for trade is. They want to know, they want a political answer. How is it going to benefit me? For example, you know, we both agree that freer trade helps poor farmers in Laos or Uganda or exporters in Sri Lanka. But I don't think that they've been honest with people, say, in Madison, Wisconsin, or people in in New York or or the Rust Belt, or France, for that matter, where manufacturing has gone down. And you've seen a turn, a shift from these communes where they were historically communist or left-leaning for years now become Le Pen voters. I don't think we've been honest enough with them in explaining what the trade-offs are. So somebody in Laos who's going to benefit from uh, lower tariffs, less import restrictions, freer cross-border trade, is not necessarily going to be uh, a good thing I would say from the perspective of somebody who's a a manufacturer in Wisconsin or New York or Northern France. And some of the answers to that can get quite technical. So how much will one benefit? How much will the other benefit? And under what conditions? And I think there's also a question about who should be deciding. So should it be people like you and I already? Our answer, of course, is yes. Of course. They might think voters should decide. They might think their elected officials should decide rather than people in Geneva who are running a dispute resolution panel, for instance. Sexiest name for a panel ever, by the way. The dispute resolution mechanism. 
Word mechanism isn't used enough. We, I think, I think we know that. I think we, I think we know that quite well. What I want to know is, is it fit for purpose? Perhaps more importantly, I think we can both agree that the WTO office space is cool. It's prime real estate. It's really nice. For any of you who've never been there or have not been on a boat and lucky enough to see it from either the lake or from or seen the lake from the WTO, it's exceptional. So just for that reason alone, I think we should keep the WTO. The cafeteria, I mean, the hot selections compared to what we've got at the UN are really stunning. I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. I mean, no wonder nothing gets negotiated because they're all staring out the window of beautiful Lake Geneva on a sunny day. How could you negotiate fisheries subsidies when you've got water skiing exhibitions going on just outside your window? Was that, that was you? That was me. That was you. That was me. I'm not not proud of it. No, nobody wants to see that when they're just getting to work, man. I'm not proud of it. So maybe this takes us to the next conversation that we wanted to have, which is U.S. politics. Maybe we were there already. The U.S. has gone into a kind of crouch lately. It's pulled out of its global leadership position. It's questioning institutions like the WTO and the WHO. And now we've had demonstrations about what do we, how do we describe those demonstrations on a podcast? I think broadly speaking, it's about racial inequalities in the U.S. and things that have been unaddressed for, I would say, far too long. The thing I keep telling people is that when I was born, that's in April 1968, U.S. cities were burning for this same reason, issues around racial inequality. Now, what I find is I'm 52, and many of the same issues about police brutality have been already identified in reports coming out of the 1968 demonstrations, coming out of demonstrations in the 1930s, coming out of reports and and analysis in many decades in between. This is slightly demoralizing. Many of us thought, well, isn't isn't things isn't life getting progressively better? It must be over two Obama administrations. And we find many of the fundamentals haven't changed significantly. That's another I think honest question that that people of color can ask in the US is is are things getting better and we know the answer broadly is no they're not getting better in terms of wages they're not getting better in terms of their inclusion in society so maybe our current president has brought it more into relief but many of these issues many of these weaknesses were there already i i think the reasons to be angry are are all valid I mean, they, there's people don't riot for no reason, and we're, if we're talking about the, the case of, of the protests since since George Floyd's death or murder, I should say. You can't look at that without putting into context what you have just said. You know, you're basically older than dirt, and so you have a lot of context to give in that sense. I mean, I think you can't. You have to look at what's happened since, say, the '60s or 1968. You know, if we take the year that Martin Luther King Jr. And Bobby Kennedy was shot, which if I talk to people who are your age or maybe slightly older, that was sort of the period where they thought that things were just going to take a, a horrendous downturn and it's gonna, it's over for the U.S., if you will. Putting that into perspective, that you have to say that some progress has been made, right? I mean, if you look at, say, John Lewis, who recently passed away, who's a civil rights icon in the U.S., this is somebody who marched with Martin Luther King, knew Bobby Kennedy personally. He was beaten to the point of near death, just for the reason that he chose to participate in a march in Selma, Alabama, which is a 
a famous sort of inflection point in the civil rights movement. He was beaten to the point of near death. He survived. He still continued on this path of nonviolence. And so today that would not happen, I don't think. And so what I'm saying is you have to put these things in perspective, understand that the anger that people have is valid. Things are not where they should be by any stretch of the imagination. There's inequality at all levels of society. And I think if you look at it globally in the in the Western world, this is the case as well. The sort of traditional example of rich getting richer, poor getting poorer. But you have to say that things have gotten better. I mean, Obama won two terms as president, the first black man elected. President for me is not a step backward. It's not as big a step forward as we'd like. But it's important to look back and reflect and, and understand that, okay, we're not where we want to be. And the U.S. is this sort of great big experiment. And I guess you can look at societies as well, broadly, not to be too American-centric about it. But you have to say that cities are not burning, apart from what happened in Minnesota immediately following George Floyd's death, which was, you know, you can attribute a number of factors to it. You can attribute racial inequalities and overabundance of police violence, which is, I mean, the guy was murdered. So you, you I, I hesitate to call it police violence or think that was murder, straight up. But you have to take into context the fact that this was during a lockdown where people who were as you said, disenfranchised, are struggling to pay the rent, struggling to buy food, struggling to do all of these things because of a lockdown. And this was sort of just the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. So it's important to address these facts, but I think that also tends to get lost in, in, in the sauce a bit, that things have gotten better. And you raising the point of the 60s is important to mention that, you know, nobody's getting shot for protesting their beliefs yet, right? And until that point happens, then I, I hesitate a bit to say that things are, are not better, I hear I hear what you're saying. They are they are better. I think they're marginally better. They're not where they should be. They didn't progress as much as they should have. For sure. And in many cases, the experience of people of color in the U.S. is still not appreciated enough. So the interactions with police, the interactions with all all different kinds of institutions. So whether it's marginally better or not, I'm not sure how important that is. And I'm also you're very unsure whether the election holds, the upcoming election holds any prospect for improvement. Does one party, let's say the Democrats, have a solution, have a something that will really take us beyond? And I'll give you an example why I ask it. This huge increase in the prison population, longer sentences, people having to serve their full sentences, all of this came about during Clinton. So, there, so right. the Democrats have a huge part in where we are in terms of how many people of color are incarcerated in the U.S. And I wonder if even COVID is allowing us to talk about what could be a solution. Because mainly what I hear from my mother is Trump has dementia. What I hear from Trump Probably is true. Biden has dementia. Maybe true. You talk about older than dirt. We weren't able to generate a candidate under 70. That's, uh, under 74. Under 74 that had a chance. So where is that taking us? Is that taking us really into the future? Well, you say old. You say dementia. I say wisdom. It, it, and it I sound be. like a Biden campaign spokesperson. You do. I mean, um, I'm also worried about the amount of different kinds of plastic surgery he's having. And I wonder if some of that collagen... That man looks good. ...could leak his into his brain cavity. You look like that when you're 78 and then talk to me. You're How old are you? Actually, don't answer that. It's, that we'll leave that for another episode. I just wonder maybe if, if if this is the set of candidates we're looking at, maybe we just bring in Berlusconi 
as a third-party candidate. He's also had the surgery, beautiful white teeth. Leader of the Bunga Bunga Party. Yeah, you know, a little entertainment value alongside... Uh, Italian flair. You know, lo- alongside the, the, the other two 75-year-olds. I think two old white men is enough. No, to, to answer your point, no, nothing will change whoever wins, uh, substantively, right? I think people are just generally tired. They want to get on with their lives. They don't want to think about politics. And so there's a likely chance that Trump is, is, is voted out. But no, I don't think things will change. I think, I think they can change if people put the pressure on. The person that opened my eyes, in fact, wasn't a millennial because you guys are actually over the hill now in terms we're, of really realizing anything. We're cynics by this point. This was my daughter who said somebody. there's really no difference between the two parties. And as I tried to explain to her the difference, I started to think back to the uh, Democrats and where they've gone. And uh, I didn't really have a good answer for that. Well, I mean, this this begets a, a much wider discussion on U.S. politics, but the Democrats have sort of calculated 30 years ago that, and maybe this is now a wrong calculation, but they calculated 30 years ago correctly, if you're looking at it strictly from a wins and losses point of view, is that they needed to sort of triangulate or find that center, that sweet spot, if you will, right? And the problem I see is now that people are so fed up with that on both sides. They're just going by the same playbook and maybe a Bernie Sanders insurgency that we saw is uh, indicative of things to come more so than Biden. But I don't think people voted for Biden because they knew they were getting change, or at least Democrats did. It was because he's not Trump. He's relatively sane, dementia or not. He's somebody that you can just sort of sit back, go on with the daily live without having to talk about Trump, say when your uncle calls. Also, he's somebody I feel like could could give me a massage if I he's if I was he's feeling touchy. a little stiff. He's touchy, but L- little he's, stiff in the shoulders. You the say neck. touchy. The communications advisor in me says he has empathy. He can connect with people. Yeah, we used to call that handsy. What does give me sort of hope is Bobby Kennedy, who is sort of like the guy I look back on as the big what if. He's when I look at U.S. politics, he's really the, the reference point I always come back to as he would be the closest thing that I have to that. He's the guy I look back and say he would have, if we had a Bobby Kennedy today, things would have been different. Bobby Kennedy, who stood for all of the things that people are protesting now, whether it's racial injustice, social injustice, wealth inequality, poverty, he stood as that candidate for so many people. He started off as a conservative Democrat or what we would now consider a conservative Democrat. He was a typical liberal Cold Warrior. He hated the communists, but he was relatively middle-of-the-road, borderline conservative. And this is when he started his career in 1960, 62, 63, is one of those years. And in a short span of five years, he became this liberal icon. And he was murdered when it looked like he would win the Democratic primary and potentially the uh, save the U.S. from having Richard Nixon for six six or seven years. But in that short span, span of time, he was able to transform himself and he, his belief system as well, right? He, be, he saw things for what they were. And I think there is a chance that, you know, Biden maybe won't last five years. Either he'll resign himself or other <laughs> pass on to a higher reward <laughs> exactly i still think there's there's room for uh progressive change right for for people to actually push him leftward and you're already seeing that on the type of different platforms that he's been putting out in the last couple of weeks together with bernie sanders campaign people which are way 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 more to the left of anything he's ever proposed in. i mean that's encouraging and i think that pressure needs to stay on the pressure from people like my daughter from the Bernie supporters and from those who haven't been politically active to use this moment to push the Democrats back towards a more balanced spectrum because we've been arguing, all of us, 
marginal uh, elements of the right, what was the right when I was growing up. Anyway, moving on. We are very delighted to have with us Bernard Hochman, who's a professor and director of global economics at the Robert Schulman Center for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute in Florence. And he's had prior positions at the World Bank, GATT Secretariat, and Sciences Po. And I was very sorry to see that he did a PhD at Michigan, but you know, I guess people do. So again, welcome to you, Bernard Hochman. Tell us a little bit about uh, your experience and uh, your, also your experience at Michigan. So I work basically on anything and everything related to trade, trade policy, especially from a development perspective. And then I just finished recent research on global value chains and what's happening to global value chains. And I've also just finished co-editing a book with Ernesto Zidio, who is at the Yale Center for Globalization, on where is trade policy going globally. Uh, I did my PhD um, at Michigan, and, and the reason I ended up in Michigan is because I'm from the Netherlands, and there's a lot of Dutch connections with Michigan, and I think Michigan was a pretty unique place. Michigan is also widely known to be much nicer than Wisconsin as well. Oh, right? Absolutely. absolutely. Well, uh, as long as we're outside the U.S., we're all from the Midwest, so we can, we can point our arrows at Artie, who's from New Jersey. A little bit to the right. New York, New Jersey, whatever it is. So Bernard, welcome again to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. You mentioned your work on value chains in that introduction you just gave. I think that maybe that's a good intro into a question I had, which was what has COVID taught us about value chains or to be a bit more provocative with the trade war and the effects of Corona at the same time compounding this? Are they inherently fragile? Is there anything that we can do to make them better? Give us a lay of the land. Where do we stand? What can we improve? And is there a way out? So I think what it's shown us is that these supply chains actually are critical to actually generating the supply that is needed to address the public health needs, the protective needs of both public health professionals, but also the population at large. And if you look at what companies have been doing and the extent to which they responded to that need, I think it's been quite dramatic and quite impressive. So I would argue that these things actually have shown to be pretty robust and resilient, depending on how we want to define those terms. But clearly, there's also lessons for policymakers in terms of not using trade policy and how to use trade policy and more generally how to self-insure against these types of events. And that really has very little to do with trade policy per se. That has a lot to do with actually maintaining buffer stocks, but also international cooperation and coordination to ensure that we can collectively respond more efficiently and faster to these types of shocks. And you say the government's got in the way. How do, how do you feel they did that? Was it just simply they didn't understand the, the scope of it and in some ways made some bad decisions or slow decisions? Well, for me, the perfect example is the French response early on in the crisis, where they said, oh my God, we need masks, we need personal protective equipment. So we will requisition everything that is on our territory. So they basically took over distribution centers of Swedish companies that actually had a lot of face masks and, and personal protective equipment that was on its way to Italy and to Spain, because they were using that as a distribution center for their products, which are made mostly in Asia, but also elsewhere. So suddenly you had this very zero-sum type thinking, oh, everything that's here is for us, 
So you essentially broke the chain at the distribution end. And the same thing happened in other countries where you break the chain at the input end, where you say, okay, we will no longer, we will keep all of these ingredients that we need to make particular medicines. And of course, that's very counterproductive. And I think governments realized pretty early on and quickly that, hey, that is counterproductive because at the end of the day, you only have what you have at that moment. And you're not really thinking about how do I actually expand supply? So for me, that's an example of governments getting in the way. If the WTO was at some point thought to be the place where things like this could be worked out, and right now it's not in its best shape, maybe it doesn't have the most support it should have, did, did that affect the agility of supply chains or is it just simply a sideshow? And is there a way that it can do in a way more in future such crises? Of course, if it gets back on its feet. No, no, I think it could do a lot more. I think it could have done more. And like you say, the atmospherics are not very good at the moment. So it's it's not a place where people go to to try and find solutions. But there are a number of areas I think that we saw with COVID in terms of what actually happened, where you could very easily see the WTO playing a very positive role. One of those pertains to information. And I think one of my takeaways from what we saw early on in the crisis is governments didn't really know where this supply capacity was. Firms, of course, know everything there is to know about their own supply chains, but don't share that information because they compete. So there really is a need and an opportunity to actually cooperate and to create a system which could be put into the WTO context where you say, okay, we share the information we have where productive capacity is, but also to create a real-time system where you can actually identify where frictions arise. And that requires a coordination mechanism. It requires interaction. And that is something where an institution like the WTO in principle is well geared to do that. The second example would be with respect to product standards. So when we're talking about medical equipment, when we're talking about medical supplies, clearly there's going to be a whole slew of health and safety related regulation that needs to be satisfied. And different countries have different regulations for the same product. And if we're talking about face masks or we're talking about some other products, a lot of the standards we have are actually equivalent. So let firms just produce to their own standards or to my standard, and that will facilitate a supply response. And that calls for kind of creating an enabling environment for that. And we have this model of mutual recognition agreements where essentially regulators decide that, okay, what you're doing is pretty much equivalent to what I'm doing. So we will just agree to accept each other's standards. And that will really facilitate life for businesses because then they can just produce to one standard, but they know that they can also sell that in other markets. I think the WTO could actually be much more of a fulcrum or a focal point to actually encourage that type of cooperation. And it would require people to, I guess, be reasonable. It would require them to be reasonable. And I think one of the things we can take, if we look back, and of course, there's been a lot of allegations about you know, substandard products being shipped, etc. But on the other hand, there's also been a huge amount of trade based on different types of standards. So we can go back and say, okay, was this actually a problem or not? So that might actually facilitate a discussion if there's a willingness to be cooperative. And of course, that is the necessary condition. So what you're saying is, let's give peace a chance. <laughs> let's at least talk to, let's talk to each other. Yes. Here's my number. Call me maybe. Brought to you by Bernard Hopeman. <laughs> you got it. So, Bernard, you guys are a bit older than I am. And I, I was in college during the financial crisis. And so I'm a millennial growing up in relatively turbulent times, at least in the context of the past 40, 50 years. Who 
who do we blame? Who do I tell my family in New York City is to blame for this? Is it the fault of the economists? Is it lawyers for getting this all mixed up? Who do we blame for the fact that manufacturing jobs have left while there's been a rebalancing of others overseas? So because I think part of this, there's a technical answer, and the other half of it is political, but I don't know if we have been communicating this well enough. So, I mean, my question is a bit facetious, but where did this go wrong? Because what you're saying makes a lot of sense, but I feel like there's a disconnect. Do you think that there's something that we could have done better in terms of communicating it or otherwise? Well, I think looking back, there's always things that could be done better. I would challenge the presumption that things have gone off the rails. I think things actually went pretty much along the expected lines and uh, what we would want to see. If you think about this from a global perspective, so it's really about integrating developing economies into the bigger system. And any introductory, intermediate, advanced textbook is going to tell you that that's going to give rise to adjustment costs. There are gains from trade. How those gains are distributed is essentially a matter for domestic governments. So it's really the role of government to intervene in that. But I would argue the kind of policies that were pursued over the last 30, 40 years have actually delivered big time. But they've also given rise to big distributional implications, especially in rich countries. And so essentially what we're seeing now is a lot of people who are relatively much better off than people in the developing world saying, hmm, this is creating problems for me. But I don't think we pay anywhere near enough attention to the people who actually have been gaining. So I think that's partly the, the issue is who are we looking at and, and who are we worried about? Now, I'm a development economist. For me, I think as far as the economists are concerned, I don't think we have that much to feel guilty about. I think economists do not pay enough attention to the distributional effects and saying this is something for politicians to deal with. And I think we haven't dealt with that very effectively in many countries. So I think that that's part of the story. Let me ask you a question about that. So if we you know, Artie is yeah, younger, not that much younger, but he's younger. And he, I also, so I went to grad school in the 90s, and we, it was the end of history, Washington consensus, we learned about efficiency, 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 movement of capital, free trade, what was a kind of faith we had in that. So I wasn't, uh, didn't get a PhD in economics, I didn't do the numbers, but I took the models uh, for granted and was a consumer of what was coming out of those models. Do I need to go back to grad school now? Do we need to, is there, are we going back to, you know, tariffs that are, that hit the right rate? We need to slow down movement of capital. We need to, you know, focus mostly on the distributional effects. Have you changed the way you're teaching economics at your institute where these are people that will lead Europe in the future? No, I don't think we've changed. I think what has changed is the, the empirical dimension of what we teach. And that's largely driven by data. So now we have much better data, which is much more micro and granular. So we can actually figure out and identify empirically what the effects are of a lot of policies where in the past all we had was theory. And I think on the distributional side of things, we, are, we have a much better grasp of who actually wins, loses, and why. So you probably saw Lighthizer's article in Foreign Affairs where he's talking about politics. The politicians need to be more involved in making these decisions. We can't have them made by dispassionate international organizations. Do you think he had a point? Do you think that made some sense? In other words, we change it's not we change the models, but we change our emphasis a bit. And by Lighthizer, you're referring to the U.S. Trade Representative, right, Rob? Yeah, that's right. 
Well, I haven't read that article, so I don't know exactly what he said, but I've read other things that he's written. Uh, and I think if, if the argument is, you know, politicians need to pay more attention to the effects of what is happening, I would agree wholeheartedly because that is their job, right? But if that gets translated then into micromanaging what is done, especially on the trade front, instead of relying on market forces and prices to allocate resources, I think that's a recipe for failure. And we've seen that play out in the real world. Very good. We had a couple of questions. I mean, you live in Florence, I guess. Is that right? Do you ever take time to visit Italy? Very rarely. <laughs> Florence is now a suburb of... Johns Hopkins, right? <laughs> it's close to Bologna. That's, that's true. But it's, it's a great place. Where did all the American tourists go? And that even makes it better, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. We were talking about the WTO earlier. And the question I had was, on a scale of zero to Joseph Stiglitz, how much reform do you think that the WTO needs as of today? From zero to Joseph Stiglitz. Oh, I think Joe is right in the middle. We need to go far beyond Joe. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> On a scale of zero to Danny Roderick. <laughs> well, I think Danny, Danny Roderick is a bit different because Danny Roderick wants to go back to the past. So he likes the GATT model. So he doesn't like anything that happened after 1995, let's say. Let's be even more provocative. On a scale of zero to your namesake, Bernie Sanders, how much reform do we need? <laughs> I think we need a lot of reform, but we need reforms which really get into the substance of the beast. And I think a lot of people who are talking, who are criticizing globalization, who are criticizing the WTO, who are criticizing trade agreements, it tends to be pretty superficial. And most of the critics are not people who actually know how the organization works. And I think there is a huge amount to be very positive about with the WTO because it is a platform for officials to meet very regularly, engage with each other, learn from each other. But that's not what you read about in newspapers. But I think there's a lot, a lot there that can and should be improved. So there are some fundamental dimensions that really constrain what the WTO can do. And one of those is the decision-making process the decision-making rule, which is consensus. And if you work on a consensus model with 164 countries, obviously it's going to be quite difficult. But if you think about business, there is no business voice in the WTO. If you think about the people we've been talking about, you know, households, consumers, the people who are affected by what happens in the WTO, the WTO doesn't pay much attention to that. I would argue they do need to worry about this. And I mentioned in the beginning, we, we ran a survey of trade practitioners uh, a few months ago, where we asked people, what are the priorities for WTO reform? So one of those elements was to do more to assess the distributional implications of what gets done in the organization and associated with trade. So that was ranked last. Right? That was the least important thing. And I fell off my chair when... <laughs> When that's what I saw this. It shows you that there is a real cultural shift that still needs to be done. And that's part of the reform challenge. Uh, allow me to be even a bit more provocative and say you should run. I think there's still time to throw your hat in the ring, DG. Ah, you see, but I'm a Dutch national. So that requires my government first to say Bernard Hochman should become DG. I'll, I'll have, have to make a free me, phone call. And they have to sell me to Brussels. <laughs> sell you to Brussels. That's a trade in good or a service? I'm not sure. This is definitely a service. 
You know, we have three excellent women who are running for the job. I think they'd all do a very good job. I think it's high time we get some diversity among that and other dimensions in the WTO. So they don't need me as DG. I think you're right in, in that respect, but wrong in one critical one. I think you would have the best slogan out of anybody. Feel the burn. <laughs> <laughs> then I'd have to pay the Sanders campaign. You know, they probably have IP on that. I think they're willing to share. It's fine. They're democratic socialists. <laughs> the more the merrier. I think it would work great. We could have a Feel the Burn t-shirts. Me and Rob actually have two t-shirts. We're going to give you a third one as well when we see you in Geneva, but we're going to be the first two official honorary members of the Bernie Bros. Bernie Bros, WTO. Okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to the case that the Sanders campaign is going to take <laughs> against you. <laughs> I think that may be bringing us to a close. So, Bernard, where can we find more about what you're publishing and what you're writing? Is there a website? Yeah, so there's a website on the European University Institutes. But I think the easiest way to find me is just type in Hukman Google and you. It's not a very common name. <laughs> I think if you Google me. Somebody in Michigan comes up. Not, not, <laughs> not enough entry points. Well, I think it's it's now our turn to say thank you very much, Bernard Hochman. A very entertaining conversation. We are looking forward to reading the stuff that you've talked about. I'm in particular interested in the in the value chain research, so I'll be looking for that to be coming out uh, in a month. And we'll see you in Geneva when we next are able to travel. Actually, in terms of just a bit of advertising, one thing we're hosting in a few weeks, this is September 22, 23, we're hosting the World Trade Forum online. The World Trade Forum tends to be a face-to-face event, which rotates between Bern and Florence. Obviously, we can't do it anywhere physically, so we're doing it online. So that might be of interest to people who are interested in trade. Very good. World Trade Forum. W- WTF? WTF, yep. There are worse acronyms. We have T-shirts, WTF, coffee cups, WTF. (laughs) We're now adding a new segment called Overheard at the UN Beach. What's that? This is some phrases we've heard, maybe amusing, perhaps slightly ironic. May or may not have heard. Which have to do with our chosen profession. Which is doing a podcast? Saving the world. Okay, we should do it on three. Just make sure we're in sync. One, two, three. Sports betting. We'll get to that. Perhaps you haven't found your niche yet. I'm still discovering my talents. This is glimmers of information we've heard taking the pulse of the international development community. The UN Beach, fabulous place to meet, learn things about where this world is going but also other venues, and we'll mix them in. And because some of these are so groundbreaking, we'll have to not be too specific about where we may have heard them. We've been talking a little bit about COVID-19, already, and this has, of course, been a big disruption in our working style, in the way we work at the UN. We've gone to teleworking. That would be true if you actually worked. One of the before. questions I often ask is, if we're striking, how will they know? Anyhow, moving on. COVID has been the biggest crisis to face the multilateral system, perhaps ever. Many colleagues and many development organizations have risen to the challenge hugely, and that's been incredibly motivating. But there have been some important human costs, which we've overheard at the UN Beach, and some concerns that have arisen. Tell me more. One of them is a lot of vacations had to be canceled. So am I allowed to carry over my vacation days from one year to the next. 
that was a that's a source of a lot of controversy. That was a big one. I heard a few of those conversations while I was sunbathing. <laughs> you 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 are tan. I do like that. I try. Thank you for noticing. Second, we've had very reduced cafeteria service. It's hard to get something to eat, and not if you're intermittent fasting. Hashtag keto. Very true. Very true. Maybe this is actually a good thing. <laughs> this is where and, the keto and in many, comes. And in many cases, selection's been reduced. So there's also a lot of concern about the availability of vegan options, vegan sandwiches. What do you put in a vegan sandwich? It's just bread. I think nothing. Hashtag air. I mean, it's very <laughs> nutritious. It depends. It's a lot about how you how you perceive it more than what's really in there. Hashtag it's an imaginary sandwich. <laughs> so COVID, of course, has has changed our lives, changed vegan lives too. Anyhow, moving on. When the UN beach reopened, they had to tell us about some very important changes. When it opened, you know, it was a big announcement, and they started a bring your own balls night. The Swiss federal health authorities had put in restrictions, which made it necessary for you to bring your own balls. Is that to the reason? UN beach club. Ah, okay. I think they had stopped speedos for a while in the beginning, just because of COVID. I, I don't believe I don't believe that's possible. I'm pretty sure that's why they stopped it. So no super spreader events. The other big thing, uh, apart from the speedos controversy, the faire de speedo, if you will, was the interns' night that they've launched at the UN, and this was a night where basically interns work for free. Marty. I think they always work for free. I guess they missed the memo on that one. If you don't count the slight discount they get on cafeteria food. Well, now it's even a slighter discount without the vegan sandwiches. The vegan sandwich is a, is a real issue. We also saw that the construction, the UN is currently, and the Swiss government, the members of the UN, is spending a billion dollars to renovate the Palais des Nations complex. We're all very excited about that. What's that called again? Palais des Nations. That's that's where I. That's the UN, right? That's the UN. That's the big one. The the big, not where not not where you and I work, but it's the it's the cool one. Okay. Yeah, it's the cool one. And uh, they, of course, are slightly delayed because COVID has you know made it difficult to continue with the construction. It's going to be put back three years. Well, it'll get done and it'll be fit for purpose. That's probably the most important part. We're in the process of building a huge conference center. Sounds timely. It'll be very, very, very... Just in time for COVID. <laughs> there will be a lot of plexiglass and a, a lot of sanitizer stations. I mean, you, you have to walk in with a bubble suit on, which to also build 10 years later. Finally, let's talk about some UN words for the day. What, what have we heard? Fit for purpose, that seems to be... That's my favorite mentioned word. ...mentioned quite a lot. What, what does this mean to you? This is basically a word that you can use in pretty much any setting, context, sentence when you're in discussions with another UN employee. For example, your bike, Rob. Would you say, it's wonderful? It really does what I want it to do? It gets me from point A to point B? No, you wouldn't say that. You'd say, it's fit for purpose. I think fit for purpose in the UN context means we're going to continue doing exactly what we were doing before, but we're going to describe it with a new set of adjectives. And you, you having been at the UN for a long time and being way, 
way older than I am, you would have heard fit for purpose plenty of times. So how many times have you been described as fit for purpose? I think fit hasn't really been used for me for a little while. Oh, stop. You look great. This is stop fishing not for me fishing. This is not me. As I must say, this is not me I fishing. I caught a big one. Whoa, it's a big one. Stop fishing for compliments. You look great. I well, know. I think it's important also to note that UN reform has been underway since forever. Your friend John Bolton was the U.S. ambassador to the UN, otherwise known as the Iron Mustache, in the mid 18th century. Why is he my friend? You do talk about him a lot. It does seem to be very important to you. No, 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 no. Michael Bolton. Oh, Michael Bolton. Who wouldn't want a love song? Who wouldn't want to? I sing it to my wife every night. She has no idea who Michael Bolton is, but it's the thought that counts. I'm now picturing you with incredibly long, very curly blonde around a massive bald spot. Michael Bolton. Don't think of John Bolton. Think of Michael Bolton. What would his White House memoir look like? I think I stumped you. I think I got you there. I think I think I, I think I finally got you. And this is something we'll leave for next week. We'll ask our listeners to come back to us. What would Michael Bolton's White House memoir look like? You're right, Rob. We will end this segment on a high note, Michael Bolton high note, if you will. See what I did there? And we'd also like to ask listeners to please send in things they've heard at the UN Beach to trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining, splaining spelled S-P-L-A-I-N-I-N-G at gmail.com. We look forward to receiving all of your submissions and giving us more content to steal. Moving on. This brings us to our next segment. Why don't you introduce this, Rob? This one's close to my heart, Artie. Thank you very much for that. This segment's called This Week in Local News. Many of our listeners may think Switzerland is stable and quiet, but they probably have not dug into some of these critical issues that we're monitoring in the local press. When I say we, I know Artie doesn't read. Does Instagram count? So I'll do the rundown. Perhaps Artie can then come in with... I'll live tweet this. Something that he might have seen on the internet could complement the segment. So first... And I know this is very close to your heart. We've talked about this quite a lot. The giant sequoia of the International Federation of Gymnastics will have to be cut down. Oh, no. The story goes on to tell us the causes of the of the sickness of the tree are difficult to establish with certainty. Was it COVID? We don't think so. <laughs> It was COVID. We don't think so. <laughs> we don't know. The surprise, because an engineer had already seen signs of weakness in 2008. That is the most Swiss thing I've ever seen. There were multiple reports of an engineer about this tree. Did he get COVID? This story does not speak to that issue, but we <laughs> will we'll find out. Maybe our listeners know. Every news story nowadays has a COVID angle. Another one, perhaps even more chilling than the sequoia, now I'm worried. Is the out-of-control bike lane expansion here in the city. Tell us more. I don't ride a bike. I just Uber everywhere. The new head of transport got a hold of apparently a lot of yellow paint, also some pink paint, and created about seven kilometers of new, big, wide bike lanes. This was apparently in response to the need for people to move on bikes rather than to take Geneva public transport. There's been a lot of mobilization of the local populace 
2,000 bikers demonstrated in favor. 500 guys in leather on motorcycles demonstrated against. This sounds like the debate that's going on in the U.S., pro-mask versus no-mask. It's a culture war. It's a culture war right at home here in Geneva. I must say, when I'm in these, and they are wide, these bike lanes. Hashtag size matters. I do tend to stay on the far left side so that I can use the entire bike lane. But question, do you pass on the left or do you pass on the right? Or do you do both? Or are you omnivorous when it comes to passing people? Perhaps maybe you're getting to another point, which is I see no additional bikes. So it's still just me. We had a, also a report of a new cat species being discovered in Geneva. You had, uh, I think, read about this. That's true. Apparently, they've discovered a new feline species in Geneva. Uh, what's interesting here is that the species they discovered is sort of near the border by Vernier, Fernet. I'm not sure exactly where, but it's not actually in Geneva center. But the good news is that the Swiss authorities are hard at work on working on a tax equalization policy for those cats that are actually commuting into Geneva from neighboring Fernet and the rest of France. Hashtag Comem. So for the time being, they should pay the revenue to the their local authority, and that will be then shared based on a transfer agreement. Which is only fair, and you would expect nothing less of Swiss people. Well, this, this cat story actually worried me already because it's another step. We've just uh, had the opening of a train that goes from France into Geneva. It's already bringing people very like us, but slightly different. They're French. And now... It could be bringing cats that look like regular cats, but they're actually from across the border in France. I mean, I have a simple and elegant solution, I think, to this. We just give them plates, license plates. Give the cats license plates, one on the front or on the neck and one on the back. Yeah. So you'll know if they're coming, if they're French cats or Swiss cats. You'll also be able to tell because in the winter, the Swiss cats will usually have uh, uh, custom sweaters on that their owners make for them. Alpine. Alpine, because also they're, they're richer. That's the joke. Yeah, I got that. So that ends our segment on This Week in Local News. If any of our listeners have suggestions, we encourage you to send them to us at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Hate mail is not included in there. Only send us love mail. Or, or neutral mail. Or just send us mail. Anything. We we're, don't really have any. We're well. lonely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've just witnessed history. That's the first ever episode of Trades Planning in the Bag. On behalf of my co-host, Rob, we want to thank everybody for joining us. We look forward to welcoming you on next week's episode. And to all of you new listeners, please remember to hit that subscribe button, download each of these episodes, and be sure to share it with your friends. And be sure to check us out on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. But once again, just a reminder that all the views expressed on this episode, and views is a strong word, are our own and nobody else's, i.e., please don't fire us. They're not even well thought out. They are just verbal diarrhea. We are an open synapse. Goodbye, everybody. Da-da-da-da.